My name's Stephen Aspinall I'm from Bazrat. Welcome to this special Bazrat BJSM podcast. Um, today I'm going to be speaking to Richmond Stace. He's a physiotherapist specialising in persistent and complex pain. He's also the founder of the Pain Coach Programme and he's the co-founder of Understand Pain Awareness Campaign. Uh, welcome, Richmond. Thanks, Steve. Good to be here. Um, so, Richmond, pain is a word we hear and use a lot, um, both from kind of a, a clinician's and a, a patient's perspective. Um, but I don't think people always understand the real scale of the problem when we talk about pain, especially in the context of sports and exercise medicine. Could you possibly tell us a bit more about the scale of the problem, especially in this kind of context? Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, it, it's as simple as this, really. Uh, pain's one of the biggest global health burdens. Uh, it costs us the most, um, along with depression. So it's an enormous global and societal issue. Um, and I feel that one of the main reasons for that is the, simply that we don't understand it. Society doesn't understand pain. We're still stuck in some rather old thinking around structures and, and pathologies equating to, to a level of pain. And simply because of, that, uh, because of that view, the way that we think about it as an individual, the way that it's treated, um, means that we're, we're missing a huge, huge component, um, if you like, or, or the broader issues which feed into the, into the problem itself. So it's a huge issue. Um, and if you look at some of the stats, they talk about 100 million Americans. They talk about 20 percent of the population. They talk about one in five children. Um, now, of course, stats we, we have to look at and, and take with a pinch of salt to a degree. But, but nonetheless, it, it demonstrates that there's a huge, huge problem out there. And it's something that we, we need to address as a society. I think that gives us obviously an idea of the scale of the problem. I mean, clearly as well, one, one of the, the key points there is with that kind of scale. It's something we're obviously not dealing with effectively at the moment. Um, and the more time we spend with patients as clinicians, the more important we realise that kind of past communication with previous medical professionals and their contact with healthcare professionals really actually impacts the patient. Um, and communication becomes very, very important. So... From your point of view, from your perspective, what does good communication actually mean to you? Um, and could you maybe kind of tell us a bit more about this pain coach concept that you utilise when dealing with these kind of patients? Yeah, absolutely. I think you, you hit the nail on the head there when you, you talk about what's happened before. Um, and, and as you said, I, I see people that have had pain for, for quite some time. I mean, it could be a few months. It could be years even. So those prior experiences and, and expectations are, are really, really important to, to what's happening now because that, that past history is, is not in isolation to what that person's experiencing now. So when we first meet them, understanding where they've come from, the experiences that they've had, understanding, getting insight into their beliefs, the causes of their suffering, which go well beyond just that pure experience of pain, um, is, is really, really important. So we, we need to understand how they've got from A to B, A being when things started and B being right now when they're sitting in front of you. And that person also needs to get a sense of the meaning. You know, how, how have I got here? And a lot of people don't realise how they've got there. Uh, it kind of creeps up on them almost. So suddenly this, this pain's there all the time. And, and you look back and, and you look back through the story and uh, Louis Gifford would talk about kindling and priming. And I think that's a, a great way to, to think about it. And when someone starts telling you their story, you can see these, these events, some more significant than others. And those body systems are learning each time, each time that person faces a challenge or a threat. And so in essence, we can get better and better at protecting ourselves. 
Because it's important to understand that pain's all about protection. It's about protection in the face of a perceived threat, as opposed to thinking that it's, it's related somehow to, to the extent of the injury. The relationship between pain and injury is, is pretty poor and, and can be absolutely non-existent as well. So again, delving into the story is, is really, really important. So then you've got from A to B and you've given that person that sense of, of meaning. You can help them to understand how this has happened over that, that period of time. And then you start focusing on the B to C. And that, that's really the, the pain coach concept. You're looking at what can this person look at? How can they think? How can they understand in order to get from right now B to C, which is where they want to be? And I I'd call it their desired outcome. Um, and they need to be thinking about what that desired outcome is. Because what you find with a lot of people who have chronic pain is they're, they're dwelling on the can'ts, the limitations. Their, their choices have been narrowed down significantly in many cases. Their sense of agency, their sense of being able to make decisions um, is hugely impacted upon by this, by this pain. It becomes all-encompassing and, and kind of envelopes them and, and everything in their life. And that, that's the basis of, of this suffering is this, this shift in sense of self, the fact they don't feel themselves anymore or how they feel they, they should be. So because for all those reasons and, and many others, they end up getting absolutely lost. And so even simple things like walking into a restaurant, for example, instead of thinking, oh, great, I'm going to have a meal here and sit down with my friends. They're thinking, oh, can I sit on that chair? Will I be able to move? So the, the whole focus and the, the, the focus shifts and, and changes enormously. And it's, it's hugely, uh, it, it just takes up so much energy and so much resource of, of that person that it just starts to feed out into all sorts of other aspects of, of life. So in that sense, they need to be able to reshape the way they think and, and create a new trajectory and, and really sculpt a new trajectory moving forwards. And so coming up with some desired outcome. So how do you want to be? How do you want things to look? And it's interesting because when that person starts working on that, and that can take a little bit of time sometimes, when they start working on that, you actually see the shift in posturing. You see some smiles appearing as they start thinking about the things that they, they could do. Of course, you've got to counter that with aspects of, of realism. They've got to be realistic about what they're, what they're going to, to achieve. Um, but that said, still, just that focus on, yeah, I can do that and I can start doing that. It gets some thinking in, in the right way. Now that's a broad brush uh, sort of description of, of what goes on. Obviously there's a lot more to it which we can, which we can discuss, but that, that's the basic essence of it. And it's very much based on a model of success. If you think about anything or anyone that's been successful, and that's actually all of us, we've all been successful at something, we come up with a notion. What, what is it that I want to do here? And we get some kind of vision in our mind's eye. We, we construct that, that image and we play with it and toy with it. And that will be based on things that we, we know and believe and, and that we've seen. So, for example, you know, listeners will be, be uh, rehab, uh, rehabbers and, and physios and, and others. And, and one day they thought, that, that's what I want to do. And they have an idea about what that means and they construct that image. And then they think, well, how do I do it? How do I get there? So they come up with some sort of plan. Well, I need to study this, and then I need to go to university, I need to pass my exams, and I need to get experience, and then I get there. And along the route, things go wrong. There's learning experiences, uh, enormous learning experiences, and they keep going. And they learn, and they move forward, and then one day become that vision. So it's very much the same as that. And you can think about getting to the moon. One day someone looked at getting to the moon and thought, we're going to get there. And then they constructed that. You can think about flying. But equally, you can think about getting out of bed. You can think about walking down the street. You can think about getting back to playing sport. The principles are the same. 
So if I was, uh, obviously I'm a, I'm a clinician, I sit down, if I'm interviewing and seeing a patient who's had pain for any length of time, um, what kind of key pointers would you give to me for um, making sure this interview um, gives both of us, both the patient and the clinician, everything they need to actually kind of um, give us a, a solid foundation for moving forward successfully? Absolutely. You know, it's, that's a great point. I think the first thing to establish is uh, is a degree of, of trust. So that, that initial welcome when you first meet someone is, is really, really important in terms of how you address them with your body language, what you say, whether you shake the hand or not. And, and you know, basic, basic etiquette. It, it really sets the scene, as of course does your, your environment that you're inviting them into. And, and I like to think of the assessment more as a conversation um, because it, it puts you on a more of an even footing. And I think that's really important because particularly with persistent pain or chronic pain, people experience all sorts of things. Um, and some of those things will fall out of the realm of, of what they would consider or what the, the biomedical model would consider to be the norm. So there's a lot of body sense changes, for instance. So someone might feel that their, their affected area that hurts feels bigger or smaller or, or perhaps not even there sometimes. And that, that's one of many sort of experiences, but they may not want to volunteer that information because they might think, well, that sounds, that sounds a bit weird and I might not be believed here. So what we need to do is really construct or, or create an environment where that person can say whatever they like. Now, of course, that takes a little bit of time, um, but we've, we need to encourage that. And the way that we can encourage that is just with this, this practice of deep listening and, and active listening. And the key thing about that is, is you as the listener, not them. It's, it's about you and putting yourself in the right space. Now, when we get up in the morning, it's, it's very easy um, for, for things to start off in a bad way and get worse. Um, and this happens particularly if we're not being aware of, of what's going on. So I could get up in the morning and stub my toe. So I've got a sore toe now and I'm hobbling around. And then I go downstairs and there's some dirty dishes and that irritates me. Um, and then I get into, into my car to drive to work and there's a queue of traffic and that irritates me. So by the time I've got to work, I'm already irritated. So it's a silly example, but in essence, this is the kind of thing that, that happens. So if we can practice our own way of developing, uh, if you like, presence and, and certainly getting into more of a compassionate mode, naturally we start listening to that person. And just by setting the scene and posturing in the right way and really giving them that, that opportunity and that time and that space, it's amazing what starts to come out. Well, actually, it isn't amazing. It, it is what comes out. One of the simple ways that, um, that or, or ways that I get myself into the mode of, of being a compassionate listener is, is simply to imagine that person as a child because we tend to develop feelings of compassion quite easily towards children. And no matter who's sitting in front of you, they, they are someone's child, of course. And um, just that, that simple switch into that kind of feeling that you get just naturally makes you concerned, it makes you listen, it makes you empathise without any great effort. And through that, you can just start this, this communication and this, this conversation, which is very revealing. And, and actually, as they tell you more and as you're giving it, as you're validating it and going along with it and then just gently explaining things as, they, as they're revealed, as things unfold, uh, they feel more and more comfortable. And it just sets the scene beautifully for all the things that, that, you, uh, that you want to do, much like you would, you would plough a field to, to sow the seeds. Um, if we were going to talk about you know, some of the simple steps. I mean, you've given us a kind of broad outline of, of, you know, kind of we want to get patients from A to B. Could you give us a couple of very, very kind of simple, you know, kind of examples of exactly how we might plan um, a couple of these kind of goals, these these strategies, 
might plan this kind of journey as the patient kind of moves forward from this first consultation um, to kind of later on and actually kind of improving obviously how they kind of perceive the threat to themselves when they're doing everyday activities. Uh, a threat is, is the key is the key word you know we we've got very very basic biology but it's very potent that's there to to protect us and um, someone who's got persistent pain um, their biology will be detecting threat in situations that aren't actually particularly threatening um, so literally at every given moment that person needs to be able to to think and act in the right way um, modern notions of neuroscience and philosophy would, would suggest that, that we're actively creating this perception, this, these, ex, this lived experience that we have at, at the moment. Um, so understanding that you're playing an active role in creating that yourself is, uh, is very empowering and certainly helps to give a sense of agency back as well. Um, in terms of you know, how you're setting goals, I, I tend not to use the word goal. Goals can, uh, can be a double-edged sword, I think. Um, it can enforce people to, to do things that perhaps they, they shouldn't be in that moment because they, oh, I must achieve it. And that slips into the issue of self-esteem um, and the, the many, many people, if not everyone, who, who suffers with varying degrees of, of being hard on themselves, um, only feeling that they've got a, a degree of self-esteem if they're achieving the top level, the A, the a grades. Um, and that, that no, um, modern culture is, is very much into that, that your self-esteem is attached to that. To, so that can sort of force someone to, to push through, perhaps too much, um, as opposed to focusing on putting in the maximum effort. And at whatever level they're working at, with a degree of acceptance that that's where they are right now, putting in maximum effort and then really being pleased with themselves for doing that which is very different to perfection. Um, the perfectionist traits are often in there and uh, people will volunteer that. And then in terms of what they actually want to achieve, uh, their desired outcome, well, that comes from the conversation. They, they'll tell you the types of things that they're having difficulty with. So either they're not doing something at all or they're doing a little bit of it, but it causes them problems. So then you start looking at those and saying, well, actually, if this particular activity, you're doing this amount, great, brilliant, we can build on that. Around that, obviously, you're going to have a bunch of uh, strategies and different types of exercises and training uh, that will facilitate that, much like an athlete who will be performing in a particular arena and then behind the scenes will be doing all this conditioning work and, and specialised work um, in, in different ways. So using that as, a, as an analogy is, is quite useful and people, people understand that. So really, as I say, it comes from that, that communication and, and setting the scene. They, they will tell you. They will tell you what it is that, um, that, that they want to do. And on the rare occasion that doesn't happen, then you can ask, just ask directly, what kinds of things are you into? What, what do you like to do? What would you like to, to be doing? Um, and I think that um, just picking up on another point, um, just going back, um, I think it's important to point out that um, in terms of pathology and injury, um, I, I'm not saying that we don't need to understand what's happened there, because of course we do. Uh, the biomedical model um, is, is very useful for that, and uh, particularly with, with acute injury. However, having said that, you know, I would treat, if someone came along with an acute ligament injury, I would have very similar conversations with that person, because in essence, that, that moment of injury um, is not always the same time as the moment of pain. So we have to talk about the moment of pain. Um, you want to know about them. You want to know about how, how they were at that time, what was, what was going on. Because the way that someone 
perceives their injury and those early messages to themselves and the early messages they receive about what they need to do and what treatment they need, etc., are absolutely key in that trajectory going forwards. So actually, that if you get someone early on, what a great time, what a great opportunity you've got then to, to set them up in, in the right way with the right kind of thinking. So they need to feel that they're more than just a ligament or, or, uh, or just a muscle or whatever's been, been injured because that's just part of their, their body. Um, it's, it's always the person we need to focus on. And so I think, you know, there's someone like Oliver Sacks, for example, who is a great advocate of that. Um, he, he's someone that uh, everyone in healthcare should be, should be reading. Do you give your patients any kind of neuroscience education as well? Yeah, I do. Again, I think it's important. Um, obviously, there's been a huge movement, uh, Explain Pain and the great work from Lorimer and, and Dave Butler. Um, and, and that's still used quite a lot. I think that, that we need to think about persistent pain in particular more as a public health issue and, and draw parallels with campaigns in, in that realm. So, for example, um, when, you know, when someone's in pain in that moment, they need to be able to think about what it is they need to do. So I don't think it's particularly useful understanding the molecular biology of pain or the neuroscience of pain at that moment. But what they do need to do is to be able to create a sense of safety and then take some take some action. So whilst you know it can be uh, it can be interesting and perhaps relevant to describe different types of receptor and chemical, I think that general principles are are easily enough for people to understand in order to reduce that threat value. Because anything that reduces the threat value in essence, will help them to, to shift their relationship with the pain and hence literally change their pain. Um, but it always comes back to the, the, the basic understand your pain in order to change pain. That's the strap line I use for the, for the UP campaign um, because ultimately we're changing all the time. We can't, we can't not change. We're designed to change. We're designed to adapt. And it's just tapping into those resources, but realizing that we are and that we can. And that's important because often people think they can't. And I think there's still a lot of messages out there about coping and managing, uh, which I don't agree with. I think that we can we can always do better. We can uh, we're always evolving. Um, and in that way, that person just needs that guide and that steer. Initially, it's coming externally. So it's coming from me or another clinician or, or some other resource. But uh, with time. And with practice, those messages start to be there in a dialogue. And that, again, that's the whole basis of the, the pain coach, is that we're coaching that person to coach themselves because they're with them all the time. I'm me all the time, so I need to know what to think and what to do at any given moment. And that way you're taking every opportunity to keep yourself orientated towards that desired outcome rather than drifting off into the, uh, if you like, distractions, the, the thoughts and the emotions around, oh, I can't get better, I won't get better, etc, etc. So if we're going to give our listeners today some kind of key take-home messages, what would you actually say? What, what kind of messages would you give them? Well, first of all, I would say that it, it always begins with, with you. Um, and we've all got our natural biases. And so starting to work out our own biases, our own ways of thinking, because we do and uh, we do have a tendency to to sort of push those on to, to other people. That's just human nature. That's just the way we're designed. So we don't need to crit ourselves, criticize ourselves for that. But we do need to make sure that we're aware 
um, and that awareness of, of how we're feeling, what we're thinking, um, is, is fundamental to creating that, that situation that I described earlier. So working on your own abilities is key. I mean, that would be a big part of the workshop that, uh, that I do at the, or that I run at the conference. Um, and, uh, and then also developing that skill of, of active listening and, and deep listening because it sets the scene. You know, we, we all learn techniques and methods and exercises and, and, and that is, is what I think, that's fairly straightforward in a sense. Um, the, the challenge is for us as clinicians to keep focused for that particular person, keeping them in mind, really appreciating their lived experience, their first person experience, and they appreciating that we're appreciating that so that they feel listened to, validated, and that, in essence, they then go along with the suggestions that we make. Again, it's like ploughing the field to, to sow the seeds. We, we've got that opportunity to create that. So developing your own abilities there is, is really, really important. That's brilliant, Richmond. Thank you very much. It's been uh, absolutely excellent having you on the podcast today. Um, and if you do want to find out more about the work Richmond is actually doing, um, he's actually going to be at the Baswat Symposium in London on Friday, the November the 18th. Um, he's going to be doing a keynote lecture. But more importantly, he's actually going to be following this up with very much kind of a hands-on, um, kind of practically based uh, workshop as well so if you're interested in that then pop onto the Bazwat website and you can get uh, more details 